Our reading tonight is from Colossians chapter 1, um, beginning at um, verse 21, 28. Thank you. <laughs> I didn't know I was doing this until quite a short time ago. Uh, if you want to follow it in the Bible, there'll be one on a table near you. Otherwise, it'll be on the screens. He is the one we proclaim admonishing and teaching everyone with all wisdom, so that we may present everyone fully mature in Christ. To this end, I strenuously contend with all the energy Christ so powerfully works in me. I want you to know how hard I am contending for you and for those at Laodicea, and for all who have not met me personally. My goal is that they may be encouraged in heart and united in love so that they may have the full riches of complete understanding, in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. I tell you this so that no one may deceive you by fine-sounding arguments, for though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. So then, just as you receive Christ Jesus as Lord, continue to live your lives in him, rooted and built up in him, strengthened in the faith as you were taught, and overflowing with thankfulness. See to it that no one takes you captive through hollow and deceptive philosophy, which depends on human tradition and the elemental spiritual forces of this world rather than on Christ. For in Christ, all the fullness of the deity lives in bodily form, and in Christ you have been brought to fullness. He is the head over every power and authority. In him you were also circumcised, with a circumcision not performed by human hands. Your whole self, ruled by the flesh, was put off when you were circumcised by Christ, having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. When you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having cancelled the charge of our legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. And having disarmed the powers and authorities, he made a public spectacle of them, triumphing over them by the cross. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Hi, everyone. Um, is this it's on? Yeah, cool. Uh, let's just pray before I start. Father, thank you for um, the letter of Paul to the Colossians. Um, we thank you for what it teaches us about you. Um, we thank you that through <coughs> reading it, we can come to know you better um, and to follow Jesus uh, more closely. And we pray that you help us to do that now uh, through, I guess, what's said tonight. Amen. Hi, uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm Chowie, uh, as has already been said. Uh, I'm a member of the congregation here at St. Paul's, and I've been here for about 
15 years now. Um, so I became a Christian during my time at school, and I've kind of been here mostly ever since, uh, apart from some time away at university, um, where I met my, my wife, Sarah, who's over there. <laughs> um, so as we've already said, uh, we are in Colossians tonight again. Uh, I think it's part of our series. Um, so I thought we could start with a bit of background um, into what's kind of going on behind our passage. So the church at Colossae um, wasn't actually founded by Paul, as most of these kind of other churches that he's writing to are. Um, it was founded by one of his, he calls them fellow servants, Epaphras, um, one of the people who's working with him. So Paul is writing to encourage these young Christians in their faith. Um, he probably kind of sees it as his responsibility to safeguard the young church, um, he's the apostle to the Gentiles, and he's the leader of the missionary efforts in the area. So he's writing to kind of, yeah, to encourage them, to um, help them to uh, keep following Jesus. So he, it's written to a church, as we said, that he hasn't met, but he's heard encouraging things from them. He writes in uh, verse 5, sorry, chapter 2, verse 5, For though I am absent from you in body, I am present with you in spirit, and delight to see how disciplined you are and how firm your faith in Christ is. So they're obviously doing pretty well. But even this verse, however, kind of hints at the challenges that are facing the new community. So it doesn't seem like uh, the Colossians have undergone or are undergoing persecution. Um, the challenge for them is something far more relatable to us today. There are other narratives, other worldviews that are challenging their faith in Jesus. So there's a good argument to be made that Paul is kind of, he's writing against some form of Judaism. Um, so they're kind of arguing that, you know, you're part of Jesus's family. That's a good start. But if you really want complete wisdom and knowledge about God, uh, you need to do more. So maybe you need to start praying or behaving in certain ways, or you need to start marking certain days of the calendar uh, and obviously, as always, you need to be circumcised. So Paul, of course, he dismisses this as nonsense. He writes in uh, verses 2 to 3, in order that they may know the mystery of God, namely Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So you don't need any extra wisdom, knowledge, this kind of stuff. You know God through Jesus, um, and you only need Jesus. Um, but I think that there's Paul's scope is even bigger than this. So, as we said, Paul is definitely writing against Jewish practices. They're seeking to exclude people from being counted as Christians. But I don't think he's just thinking about that. So Paul writes that Jesus is the head over every power and authority, about how Jesus triumphs over the powers and the authorities through the cross. So I can't help but think that Paul is referencing the Roman Empire as well as Judaism. So he's careful not to criticize the empire too explicitly, but he knows that there's more than one threat to the continued faith of these young Christians. The Roman Empire is also full of hollow and deceptive philosophy. So I think we'll kind of take that angle uh, in this talk because it's a bit less well-known. So we'll look at two main things tonight. So firstly, we'll look at what it means for Jesus to be the head over every power and authority in Paul's time, in his context, and for us today. And second, we'll look at the implications of Jesus' victory at the cross over the powers and authorities. 
So what does it mean for Jesus to be the head over every power and authority? Well, for Paul, it meant that Jesus is the Lord and Savior of the whole world. Nothing too controversial there. But for any contemporary member of the Roman Empire, they knew exactly who the Lord and Savior of the, Lord, of the whole world was. It was Julius Caesar. It was his son, Augustus, and all of the emperors, who are also confusingly called Caesars, um, who came after them. So Julius Caesar, Augustus, uh, the current emperor, I think it's Tiberius, but it doesn't really matter. They are the saviors of the world. And so when Paul says that Jesus is the head over every power and authority, he's not plucking this phrase out of thin air. In the Roman world, power and authority belong to Caesar. And whilst a Jew might protest that they actually belong to God, Paul would add, yes, and to God's son and representative, Jesus. So what was the form of Caesar's lordship then? How does Caesar save the world? How does he exercise his power and authority? Well, through his legions who have brought peace to the whole known world. So doubtless it was peace at the end of a sword. It was salvation through violent subjugation and savage cruelty, but it was peace nonetheless. After all, Paul could only safely travel through the lands of Asia Minor and Greece because of the peace the Caesars brought. It was through such peace that the Caesars demonstrated their power and their authority. And Jesus had plenty of chances to become a ruler like Caesar. His kingdom could have been built on the same principles as the Roman Empire, with the strong ruling the weak. He could have accepted the acclamation of the crowds as he entered Jerusalem. He could have overthrown the local Roman governor, created his own empire using the same methods as Rome. But Jesus and the early Christians knew the source of these methods. It was Satan, not God, who lay behind the violent coercion of the Roman Empire. In Matthew 4, verses 8 to 10, we see this temptation. The devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus said to him, Away from me, Satan, for it is written, Worship the Lord your God and serve him only. So Jesus understood that God was not interested in creating another human empire, as though the Messiah was simply another ruler amongst many. For Christians, Jesus was Lord and Savior, not because he was some great earthly king who could enforce peace through his armies, but because he had died and risen again. And in his dying, Christians could die to their sins, those things that we do, think, or say that alienate us from God and from each other, and rise again to new life in Christ with a new pattern of life. As it says in Colossians uh, 2, verses 11 to 12. So having been buried with him in baptism, in which you were also raised with him through your faith in the working of God, who raised him from the dead. So you go from dying to yourself and rising to new life. And it's not, you're not forced into Jesus's kingdom. You're freed to follow him through his death on your behalf. But God, and God shows the world that Jesus was the head over every power and authority. This gospel, this message is more powerful than anything the Caesars have. He's raised him from the dead. So when a member of the Roman Empire made the choice to follow Jesus, they weren't following a different religion with a slightly different set of beliefs about God or the gods. Everything they understood about power and authority was different. God's Messiah was not like Caesar. 
the kingdom of God was in no way like the kingdom of Rome. In God's kingdom, power and authority were used sacrificially to serve the poor, the foreigner, and the widow, not to oppress and to exploit them. Peace wasn't enforced through threats or through being stronger than your enemies. Peace existed amongst Christians because of the love they had for one another. It says in Colossians 3, 13 to 14, bear with one another and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you and over all these virtues put on love which binds them to all together in perfect unity. So does the gospel, that message, does that change how we see the world today in the same way? So maybe it's kind of natural that these ideas aren't so radical anymore. Um, after all, large parts of how we think as British people uh, is built on a foundation of Christian ethics. And Roman ideas about power and authority were built, you know, they seem pretty unpleasant now, unless you're a fascist, I guess. But, um, but we need to ask then, is there anything in the modern world that kind of sets itself up as a Lord and Savior? that claims to have the power and authority to save us. So in modern Britain, I guess, I think we've perhaps replaced Caesar with Mammon. That's the god of money. Um, so growth in GDP is our good news and infinite economic growth on a planet of finite resources. So we hold up billionaires as people to be admired and emulated, even as their workers go without pay or sufficient rest, and as the corporations they own destroy the planet. And as for ourselves, our pay has to increase throughout our careers. We have to replace our phones yearly. Our standard of living has to keep increasing, otherwise the economy is doing badly. A recent report from the IPCC said that we have four years to cut our carbon production, or the planet will suffer catastrophically. Global warming and climate change will be irreversible. Ecosystems will collapse. Who knows what the human cost will be? Maybe economic growth, both personal and as a society, doesn't have the power to save us. In Proverbs, the writer asks God to give him enough for his daily bread. He doesn't want to be so rich that he forgets God or so poor that he steals and dishonors God's name. The writer knew that there was a limit to the material goods he could safely have. It's easy to think we don't have enough when we already have too much. And Jesus, when he encountered rich folk, he gave some pretty challenging advice. Sell everything you have, give it to the poor and follow me, he says to a rich young man. And obviously he's talking to a very specific situation. The young man can't bring himself to love God more than he loves his money. That's fair enough. And it's still a good thing to ask ourselves, do we love our possessions more than God? Would we be willing to go to these lengths to free ourselves from a love of material possessions, from the need to have more? And not just that, how do we protect the world that God has given us to steward and the poor and the voiceless who will suffer the most if we don't act? How will we protect them from our need to have more? How do we show today then that Jesus is Lord and Savior in a society that often sees prosperity as the answer. So we've seen that Jesus is the head of every power and authority. 
And although his lordship looks very different to how we often think about power and authority, both in Paul's time and now. So following the way of the gospel, even though it is, it's so countercultural, some might call it foolish. It's better than following the way of the world. But Jesus is not just head over every power and authority. He is also victorious over them through the cross. As it says in Colossians 2, 13 to 15, his, dead, his death meant the forgiveness of our sins. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of legal indebtedness, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. So our sins are forgiven. But in doing this, Jesus has done something more than just forgiving us and welcoming us as his people. That's pretty great. But he is triumphing over the powers and authorities by the cross. He's making a public spectacle of them. Jesus is, in the sight of all, defeating the powers and authorities of the world. So what does this mean? I think you kind of have to dig a little bit into how Paul thinks uh, to get to any sort of answer. So Paul, I guess Christians, Jews uh, as well, we all believe that God will renew the world one day, that there will be a new creation. So Jews in Paul's day believe that God will change the old creation, this kind of world and the way that it functions. At the end of time, he will destroy sin and suffering and death. He will usher in a new creation where the righteous will live forever in peace. So Paul believes this too, but there's a vital difference. Instead of the new creation being at the end of time, it began with the death of Jesus on the cross. So the new creation, heaven, God's kingdom, these are all ways of saying that God's rule and reign are already breaking into the world. So this process <coughs> will be complete when Jesus returns. But the crucifixion is already a victory because it's the beginning of a new age. The powers and authorities of the old creation, such as the Roman Empire, are defeated. Jesus' death has started the process that will inevitably end in God's kingdom coming fully on earth. So as we've already seen, this new kingdom involved a new way of life. It involved a new way of looking at the world for the citizens of the Roman Empire. It means a re-evaluation re of what it meant to be Lord and Savior. And it meant that they believed more than that, that Jesus had defeated the Roman Empire, that his way of living, his kingdom was already victorious. And it seemed ludicrous at the time. Um, but through the resurrection, that's, yeah, that is how they understood um, the victory of Jesus. So he didn't just defeat it. He disarmed all the powers and authorities in our world. So today, when we see all the tyrants, all the evil and abuse of human societies throughout history, <coughs> they won't have the final say. God's kingdom will triumph. Justice and mercy will prevail. So that triumph begins with the forgiveness of our sins, through which God creates a church to reflect the values of his kingdom, the values of his new creation that is coming in full. So the powers and authorities are already disarmed because not even death or suffering can separate us from the love of God because we have eternal life through the cross. Paul gives us quite a simple application for the hope that we have. He tells us in Colossians 2, 6 to 7, just there at the end, he says, be overflowing with thankfulness. So for the early Christians, they could be thankful 
that the Roman Empire and its ways are now defeated, that they belong to a new kingdom, and a kingdom in which you are loved and accepted, not because you were strong or rich or clever, but, or because you happened to belong to the right social or ethnic group, but because your sins were forgiven through the cross. And I think today we can still be thankful that the powers and authorities of the world have been overthrown. We are so, so fortunate to live in Britain with all of its political, its social freedoms, but we can still see that our society is enthralled to consumerism, to materialism. Across the world, there's been a rise in authoritarian governments, governments who oppress the weak and vulnerable, who seek to promote strength and prosperity at the expense of others. We've heard that um, Afghanistan is falling to the Taliban. C.S. Lewis writes in The Magician's Nephew that soon, very soon, before you're an old man and an old woman, great nations in your world will be ruled by tyrants who care no more for joy and justice and mercy than the Emperor Jadis. That's the White Witch, the big bad in the Narnia series. So how prophetic those words seem. And in all of this, despite that, we can still be overflowing with thankfulness that Jesus has and will defeat these powers and authorities. One day, God's kingdom will come in full. Joy and justice and mercy will triumph. So as we finish, let's think and pray about a couple of things for a minute. Uh, maybe we do see, maybe we do struggle, sorry, with seeing Jesus as the head over every power and authority. I gave the example of love of possessions, which I think will be a common struggle today. Maybe there's other areas in our lives that we don't think of Jesus as Lord, as the head. I guess otherwise we could be thankful that Jesus has defeated the powers and authorities at the cross. There's so much in the world that's opposed to God, but they won't have the final word. Um, so let's just take a minute to reflect on some of these things.